On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about education because there are two alternatives, it seems. One is that people are pushing for reduce the class sizes for elementary school because that's the safer option, which it may well be. But we found out last night what the cost of that would be in Hamilton. It is a staggering financial cost to reduce those classes. Which option do you want when you have all the figures? We're also going to be talking about housing because this city has been known to have a housing problem for a long time. We're seeing, though, vacancies in commercial and office buildings. Could those be turned into residential to help solve the problem? And one of the great stories in Hamilton history is getting new life and a new look with a new nine-part podcast on the story of Evelyn Dick. We talked to the woman behind it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So yesterday, though, I mean, there was a lot of information at the school board meeting last night. A lot. Of, I think one of the uh, one of the school board trustees even said it was they were a little overwhelmed by just how much information had to be absorbed. Uh, one of the things, though, that I, I found startling at the at the meeting yesterday, there's a report from the board that says that if we were going to do what a lot of people are proposing, which is to take elementary classes down to 15 students, which I think fits in with what the Sick Kids Hospital people have said and others, the number just in Hamilton alone would be $76 million and would require us to hire an additional 900 teachers. That's a, Peter, that's an astonishing number, is it not? Uh, it, it is, Scott. And uh, let me just uh, set some context that uh, as we prepared the report for our trustees and for the public last night, uh, we wanted to be fully transparent. This is obviously top of mind. We've heard from uh, many families, uh, you know, requesting that we at least review the possibility of reducing class sizes. So uh, in the report, you see uh, some of the figures in terms of what that would mean just from a standpoint of hiring uh, the required number of teachers. Yeah, and there's no reason, and by the way, when I said astonishing, I wasn't suggesting for a second those numbers aren't real. I have no reason to think those numbers are not accurate. It's just a, a humongous amount of money to do what theoretically would be the utopian response to what's going on. It's uh, certainly a significant amount uh, and uh, a significant amount of teachers, uh, keeping in mind that uh, currently in our elementary schools, uh, we do have class size caps uh, in the primary grades. Uh, there's uh, a cap for kindergarten and overall class averages for grades four to eight. And that's what we've been working within. Um, this was a, uh, an example of what it would take to take those numbers uh, and reduce them down to 15 while providing uh, schooling every day uh, for every student. It, one of the things that immediately crossed my mind when I heard this, because again, I mean, it's lovely to have utopia and I know everybody would love to have the perfect scenario until you see the price tag. I'd love to own a Lamborghini too, but I, then I, someone tells me how much it costs and I say, oh, wait a second, I can't necessarily do that. Well, for me, I definitely can't do that. But anyway, um, could you Theoretically, could you, if you wanted to, as a school board, hire these teachers on a contract? Do you have that mechanism that you could bring in 900 teachers and say, We're, you're hired until we get this COVID thing straightened out and then you're going to be released? Or the minute we hire them, are they then essentially full time and then layoffs would have to happen and severance and all the rest of the stuff? Uh, well, we, we do have a collective agreement uh, negotiated both provincially and locally with uh, our, our teachers' unions. 
so we, we would be bound by what's in the collective agreement and from the hiring process. Each year, um, we go through an adjustment period based on our enrollment uh, and uh, our class sizes in terms of how many teachers we need. We've been very fortunate in our elementary schools uh, in Hamilton for the last number of years where we've had um, uh, an elevation in our enrollment numbers, which means that we've actually been in a hiring position for the most part. Um, but if that were to change, if the, um, the number of teachers required would be reduced, then there would be a process uh, that we would follow for uh, you know, letting these teachers go. And, no, and I understand that. I'm, I'm thinking more of with this proposal, with this theoretical idea of bringing in 900 teachers for the present time to bring the class sizes down. Can we hire contract teachers or do we have only with the union rules, only full-time teachers that we could hire? Uh, we would have to follow and honor our uh, collective agreements. These would be full-time positions. Uh, that's what we would be putting in. Uh, if we were creating a class, uh, then we would have to staff that class with a full-time teacher. Which means, again, when this whole thing gets resolved, you either keep the classes at this size, again, with this, in, with this idea, or you would have to do layoffs. I mean, nobody likes layoffs, but I mean, if you're bringing them in, you're bringing them in is the point. It's not just a stopgap measure. Uh, correct. Yeah, that's okay. correct. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting education. We're chatting about the conundrum that we have, honestly, because I think everybody would love to have all the safety measures and everything that we could possibly do to make going back to school 100% safe for our kids. We all want that. But it's it's not maybe just quite as easy as that because of cost. And again, the school report Hamilton Wentworth District School Board last night in their meeting, $76 million to take elementary classes down to 15 students, hiring 900 teachers. Peter Silverine is the Associate Director of the District School Board, the Public Board. He joins me again, Peter. Um, out of curiosity, because uh, this, is, this, this is so fascinating, this thing, because it is such a, it is such a debate between doing everything that could possibly be done and dealing with the financial realities or repercussions even if let's go back to say may when you know march was when school cut off let's say by may a plan had come in place to do this could the school board have hired 900 teachers by now or by the time school starts and got them properly in position and up to speed to be able to teach in the fall well scott uh, what i'll say is that we we began our work uh, in early may uh, recognizing that we would be uh, reopening schools at some point, uh, whether it was the latter part of the school year or, or this September. Uh, so we uh, started to get prepared in May um, with um, committees formed right across our system um, with countless staff working um, hundreds of hours, putting together uh, scenarios and plans for reopening. Uh, so that's how long it's taken. Uh, we received the first uh, guiding principles from the, uh, the Ministry of Education on the 19th of June, uh, which uh, helped us in terms of, you know, guiding some of the planning that was already underway. And then, as you know, on July 30th, uh, some revised guidelines were provided um, by the, uh, the minister 
where he also announced uh, masks for all students uh, in grades four through 12, uh, masks and face shields for, uh, for all staff, uh, and that the Hamilton board, along with uh, 23 other boards, would be uh, in our part of uh, designated uh, boards uh, that will be opening in an adaptive mode uh, with smaller cohorts of students in secondary schools, but that all schools would be returning uh, in a conventional mode um, uh, in September in, in, for grades uh, kindergarten to grade eight. So to answer your question, going back to May, um, things were so uncertain back in May. So we, we certainly began our planning uh, the best we could, uh, looking at uh, a reopening scenario that could have been uh, any time at the latter part of that school year or the beginning of this. And, and you know, like I'll give credit. I mean, I, the, the report that you guys put out, I think it was in the 40 something pages that came out. I mean, it's 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 pretty comprehensive. And, and I don't think anyone's going to say that you have not been at least going through and preparing for for what you can possibly do. Um, and so that's not a criticism. But again, I go back to the idea, if we had known in May with these numbers and, you know, this report, you know, comes out closer. But if we had said in May that we were going to do the 15 students per class, could you have brought in, hired and prepared and trained and got ready 900 teachers by now? It seems like a, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it just sounds so difficult and so such a huge thing to have tried to have done. Certainly it would have been, uh, but I'm going to give uh, a shout out and credit to uh, the incredible folks uh, in our school board, um, colleagues at, uh, you know, Hamilton Public Health, uh, who've really worked incredibly hard to take uh, an unknown, which is this reopening in a pandemic, um, and made some incredible plans and thoughtful plans, you know, guided by five key principles that we've always had front and center. Uh, so the safety of students and staff, uh, first and foremost, minimize the disruptions that we have to our regular school routines for all of our students and all of our staff. Being able to move nimbly between um, the different scenarios that we might find ourselves in. Uh, so while we're gearing up for a September reopening, um, First of all, we didn't know what that would look like, uh, whether it was everyone back, some back, or would we stay remote? But then we were reminded that we needed to be ready to move into any one of these scenarios at any given time. And when we look around the world, we see that there is a, a resurgence at times. And so we needed to find ways to plan uh, to be able to uh, move in and out as nimbly as possible. We wanted to and continue to respect the collective agreement. So we worked really hard to negotiate with our union partners. And, uh, you know, as you stated earlier, um, being fiscally responsible. Um, and that also means at times, if you need more, you ask for more. Uh, and certainly our board of trustees through a motion last evening um, will be through our director of education, asking the ministry to, to consider uh, providing some additional funds uh, to help support the reduction in, in class size. So all, this is all to say that um, if you had asked me the question back in May um, and envisioned a plan like the one that we put forward last night, I would have said, wow, that is, that is incredibly hard to do. And yet, 
you know, through the through the hard work of everyone, we, we've done that. And so would we have been able to uh, with, uh, you know, the information back in May? Um, it's hard to tell. Can't uh, can't go back. But uh, we're, we've certainly been able to do a lot that uh, we've never envisioned before because nobody's been through this that we know before through a no. pandemic closed schools reopen so the playbook is being written as we go you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml ray mcnally is an architect with toms and mcnally design he is the past chair of the hamilton burlington society of architects he joins me now graham thanks for doing this today oh my pleasure we've heard for months years now that hamilton has a housing shortage uh yesterday at city council the they were talking about the Commonwealth Games, but the bulk of the discussion seemed to be not on sports, but around the potential for three thousand housing units that could be the legacy. Is taking abandoned or unused commercial space and repurposing it to residential is this the answer? Um, well, I think it could be part of the answer. Um, you know, it, it it wouldn't be without its own challenges, um, but certainly, you know, is um, when you think of industrial changes that occurred in Toronto where factories got turned into condos. I mean, there's a model, I think, there of taking unused buildings and taking the the embodied energy there and translating it into, uh, repurposing it into something that is more, you know, more useful, more relevant for uh, contemporary culture. So I think certainly it could be part of it, but it's not, it wouldn't be without its challenges. You know, since I've been um, thinking about this, since you contacted me earlier, um, thinking about, okay, if I had to do this, what would that look like? And, uh, you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of things about office buildings that are, are unique to offices that I think might create some challenges. But, you know, I'll leave it there for now, but happy to okay, do well, more detail. I do want to dig in. First of yeah. all, do we have, uh, and I know there have been, there are examples. I mean, if you drive around the city, there's the, um, the school right at the bottom of the hill in Dundas going up into Flamborough. I can't remember the name of the school. Probably Dundas. Was it, well, Dundas, there's a school that was turned into condos. Lovely now what they've done. Yeah. And there's other places. Yeah. There's other examples. Yeah. But do we have many buildings in this city right now that are front of mind for you that would work for this kind of thing? Well, there's, there's buildings where I'd love to have a condo. <laughs> the, the Stelco Tower, of course, like, my gosh, the views from that would be astounding. And you wouldn't, in my mind, you know, I would be 100% comfortable with uh, the rough and tumble concrete uh, interior on that. Um, but, you know, I've heard, the other thing I think that's interesting is that there's, there's office buildings that we think of as the, the towers in the sky, but there's a whole lot of sort of smaller office buildings as well. Right. I'm thinking of um, like as you drive out Main Street, you know, there's some of those lower rise ones. And I, I think those ones, you know, it, 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 they present their own unique challenges, but also their own unique opportunities, I think. Um, you know, one of the challenges on the big office towers is the floor plates are so big that getting a unit that gets uh, access to the exterior, which is a, you know, it's a requirement from the building code that you have a certain amount of window could get pretty challenging for units that people find affordable. Um, whereas those smaller mid-rise office buildings might have a, a more easy, uh, easy opportunity to get access to daylight. All right. You mentioned the challenges. Let's go right there because I mean, clearly that's going to be key to this thing. What are, what are the challenges that, it, that would come with transforming an old commercial building, whether it's a big high rise, as you've just described, one of them, one of the problems, or even a smaller one. What are the challenges that come with turning that into something where people would want to live? 
So the most, I mean, the most banal, the most boring challenge would be that they simply wouldn't be zoned for residential. So you'd have to get the property rezoned to allow it. But let's let's pretend, or let's assume that you know the city gets on board with the idea and says this is a this is a solution. As we've said, you know, you opened with this is a solution for some housing. We have a we have vacancy due to the COVID. Um, so let's do that. Let's 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 put the planning stuff aside. Challenges from the from an architectural point of view would be. Um, access to daylight how do you break it up into units that are marketable and and how do you you have to introduce a lot more plumbing you know when you have an, a floor plate of offices you have one centralized washroom if you're going to do residential now you're going to have a lot more um, toilets and sinks and electrical uh, loads around the walls um, and then how do you make it beautiful uh, and how do you make it so that when you come off the elevator or, or up the stairs you end up feeling that you're in a a residential building and, and maybe not in a, a an office building. But I mean, I think that, you know, certain properties would lend themselves to it and certain ones might be more challenging. I think that, you know, architects, you know, this is sort of challenges we love to deal with is how can you make something that maybe isn't so beautiful into something that is beautiful and how can you manage to come up with a design solution for stuff like this? I think, you know, You'd find a handful of architects for sure in town who would be willing to take on the challenge if somebody wanted it, to do this. It doesn't sound insurmountable. It sounds challenging, but it doesn't necessarily sound insurmountable with a lot of Yes, absolutely. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton has, we've been told over and over and over and over again, got a housing problem. We don't have enough of it, especially affordable housing, which may or may not fit in at all with what we're talking about today. But we are talking about housing. And the idea comes from a suggestion that in Toronto, where there are now millions of square feet of available commercial space because of COVID or other reasons, businesses failing, businesses downsizing, whatever, you've got all this square footage now, maybe it could be repurposed into housing units rather than office space. Graham McNally is a architect here in town with Tom's and McNally Design. He's past chair of the Hamilton Burlington Society of Architects. We've been talking about this idea and Tom, from Leaving aside the the beauty or the aesthetic of being able to turn an office building into a condo or a unit, whether or not that's possible, are there different requirements from an engineering perspective and beyond the plumbing? I mean, does it? I'm assuming a commercial building is just as strong, just as safe, just as everything else as a residential building would be, right? I mean, as far as structurally soundness, it should be there should be no challenge transforming that. Yeah, it, actually, it would actually be stronger. Um, they tend to be built um, about, I think it's 100 pounds per square foot, whereas a residential could be 60 pounds a square foot. Um, so from that point of view, you, you'd have absolutely no problem. Um, you you know, you might have, depending on unit size and depending on layouts, you might have to make some more corridors to get people out safely over to exits. But from a structural point of view, you should be, you should have no problem. And am I wrong that it it would be generally less expensive to renovate a building rather than building brand new, or am I wrong? Uh, well, I, I mean, every case is unique, but I would say that look, you, you know, it wouldn't be, it would probably be cheaper, and it would certainly be cheaper from an energy standpoint. Um, you know, the the fact that the building exists is going to be the most energy efficient way and the most sustainable way um, to build the space, assuming you can make it work. Um, you know, I think. One benefit would be that oftentimes in commercial buildings, the ceiling spaces are taller, uh, so the floor-to-floor, floor, we call it. So the floor of, let's say, the third floor to the floor elevation of the fourth floor is going to be greater than you might find in some residential projects. And so that's going to give you a good quality space and allow you to 
to put in some of the you know more HVAC you might need for a shower vent or an, uh, a stove vent or anything like that. So I think there's there's some uh, characteristics of office buildings that would lend themselves quite well to being adapted. So why have we not seen more of this already? We've seen some, as we pointed out, but why has it not been more widespread? I, I mean, honestly, I think right now the zoning would be a, the challenge. Um, so you'd have to go to the city and say, hey, I've got this office building that's a commercially zoned building, but I want to turn it into residential. And, um, you know, you'd have to get the number of units approved and the density per hectares, all, the, all these planning things. Um that would, I think, up to now, probably economically, people are looking at offices and, and they have the zoning for downtown and the city wants office space downtown. Um, and it's, you know, it costs money to, to transition that over to residential. Um, and as long as you have commercial tenants, you don't need to switch. Um, but as we say, you know, who knows what exactly the fallout's going to be from COVID and people working from home. But, you know, there's certainly, you know, if your building's going to stay vacant for 15 years, maybe you just look at spending some dollars to switch it over into a residential and, you know, get the planning put in place and then do the renovations. And I think like, you know, with the right, with the right design team, you could, you could make um, a commercial office into a really cool uh, residential suite, I think. Well, and one challenge about that um, is that you get someone who comes in, who's a really talented architect and a talented builder and, you have this vision of a beautiful building that comes from, you know, this amazing plan gets designed and it gets turned into a gorgeous place. The problem then becomes all the people who are involved in that are going to want to be paid for that. It's going to cost more money. It's, I think it's, a would I be wrong that it's a much harder thing to convince all these people to get together and say, Hey, here's a building. Let's make a bare bones bottom of the barrel, but just, you know, good enough to live in clean, uh, safe, but we're not going to make it, so much that all, that the price has to go up because the whole issue here seems to be the affordable housing idea, and I don't see people lining up to do that. Yeah, I think I think um, you know every every client has different financial models that works for them and what their goals are. I think that um, there certainly would be buildings where you could do a renovation that would be um, um, appropriate for affordable housing, and that's not to say like cheap or, or low quality. I just mean like you know we're we're not putting in there's no need to put in water features in the lobby, that sort of thing. Right. Um, right. And, and, you know, Indwell is an example of a affordable housing provider that's converted buildings that are not residential into residential buildings. So, um, um, not, not so it can be done, saying, but it certainly can be done. Absolutely. I think, you know, I guess they did a project in um, Woodstock that took the factory and turned it into residential uh, units. And, um, uh, when I was, I, I actually, I used to work for um, an, an, another architecture firm in Visage and worked on that project a bit. And the units are long and skinny, um, but with, you know, we, we applied our creative thinking and we made it work that the factory got converted. Not unlike what, you know, the condos in Toronto, but I think that with the right creative thinking, you could, you could, you could get it to work. And, and, and that's what, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because we, we got to run, but I was just going to ask you, um, but you just answered it. I mean, there are, there are some places you talk about factories. It doesn't have to be an office space. I mean, there are some places that you might never think would work, yeah. but could probably be turned into something if even fact old factories or things like that. I mean, it's possible. Oh yeah, for sure. And there's um, there was a building on Cumberland, I think it was 301 Cumberland, that was a co-working space that um, I had a client approach us who wanted to look at converting it to condos, and it, it's it's definitely doable. That was I think a two-story old industrial building being used as offices definitely could be converted for sure um, fascinating possible 
part of the solution. Uh, we'll see if the city latches onto it. Certainly, I think developers will. I just we'll see if the city does. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are three or four stories in this town that people never seem to get tired of talking about. Anything to do with the mob seems to fit into that category and sometimes old mob stuff and sometimes the stuff that's been going on more recently. Uh, You can start a full-on debate slash discussion slash argument with anybody just about by bringing up the stadium or LRT. That's an ongoing one. And at the top of the heap, probably more than anything else, the story that you can get people to talk about would be Evelyn Dick. And I'm going to trust that most people listening are familiar with the name, probably familiar with the story, too. If you're not, stick around. We'll give you the outline of what it's all about. If you're saying to yourself, Evelyn who? Stick around. You'll, you'll understand. Anyway, this year, Evelyn Dick would have turned 100 or would turn 100. We don't really know. We don't know if it's past tense or present tense because we don't know where Evelyn Dick is to know whether or not she's still with us or not. I mean, chances are she would have been 100. Chances are she's gone, but who knows? Well, on that anniversary, a new podcast has picked up and taken on her story. It's called Where Are You, Mrs. Dick? It's done by the same production company. I find this great. Done by the same production company that is behind Love It or List It on HGTV. The woman who is behind that company, Catherine Fogarty, is the president of Big Coat Media. She is also the host of the podcast. She joins me now. Catherine, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Scott? I am great. I got to tell you, I've loved what I've heard of the podcast, but it does seem like an awful long way from reality real estate shows <laughs> to gruesome <laughs> murder mysteries. It is. It's, uh, it's about as far as you can get, I think. So that's what makes yeah. it interesting. Well, you're not, I don't think you're a Hamiltonian, and we won't hold that against you, but it made me wonder how you came to know about the story and become interested in it. Well, um, what happened is um, I've actually been writing a book for the past five years on a a different topic, and um, one of the lawyers that was involved in that story, his name was Arthur Martin. He was a very uh, famous criminal lawyer. And so I was doing some research uh, about him at the Toronto, or sorry, the Ontario Archives, uh, they have an oral history on him, five hours of, uh, of him talking uh, about different cases. And he, uh, as I was listening to him uh, talk, he mentioned the Evelyn Dick case. And so this is about three, about three years ago. And I remembered the case from when I was a kid. Uh, I'm not a Hamiltonian, but I grew up uh, in a little town uh, close to Hagersville. Okay. So, yeah, so maybe an honor. Close enough area. to be familiar. Close enough, yeah. Port Dover, Hagersville area. So I remember the story. Uh, so when I heard, when I was listening to this tape uh, of Arthur Martin, I thought, you know what? I, I want to read about that story again. So, uh, so I picked up the two books and uh, started reading. And I have to say, I, I mean, as many of us know about the story and the torso murder, what I didn't know at the time, and what really struck me was uh, at the beginning of Brian Valley's book, he talks about how Evelyn Dick was in Ottawa, and she was having a smart lunch with the head of the, the, the uh, Canadian Parole Board, um, a, a woman by the name of Mary Louise Lynch. And I thought, how in the world is that possible for a convicted <laughs> killer? 
So that's what really intrigued me uh, about the story was what actually happened after she was paroled, because I don't think a lot of people realize or, or know that part of the story. And it's well, just before we. Just before we get there, now, I expect that the number of people that we're going to be talking to for the next minute or so are probably, you can count them on one hand. But just for those people, and you've just done the podcast, so take a few seconds, take a minute, and tell the Evelyn Dick story in a nice Reader's Digest version for those very few people who don't know what we're talking about. So Evelyn Dick was uh, a woman, a young girl, who was raised by two Scottish uh, immigrant parents. She was born in uh, 19... 1920 um, in Beamsville, Ontario, and then her parents moved to Hamilton. Uh, she had a very unique childhood. Um, they were, uh, I guess they were, you know, the mother really wanted Evelyn to move beyond uh, her station in life. And the dad, uh, he worked for the, the rail company. And um, so when Evelyn was a young girl, they were they sent her to private school. Um, they indulged her with fur coats and jewels. And then um, she really started attracting the attention of men around Hamilton. And she um, was uh, very, um, uh, she was very popular. Let's put it that way. Yes, very uh, popular. Very popular. <laughs> and so when she was a young woman, around 22 years of age, she had her first child, uh, a, a little girl. And she, she was still living with her parents um, as, as a single mom, which, again, wasn't, uh, wasn't something that was uh, very uh, well uh, received in those days. So she invented a husband for herself who was um, in, the, in the American Navy. So nobody ever met him, but she said she was... She was married, and then she later said, said he had died at sea, and she was a widow. Uh, a few years later, she had another, well, actually, a year later, she had another child, um, a baby girl that was uh, stillborn. Um, and then about a year, year and a half after that, she had a, a baby boy. And when she, um, when she came home from the hospital, she didn't come home with the baby, and she told her parents that she'd given the baby up for adoption. And nobody, nobody ever questioned her story. Never, nobody ever thought anything more of, uh, more of it. Um, and then uh, a year after that, so this is 1945, 40, actually 1946, she announces to her parents that she's getting married. And she marries this guy uh, that uh, also works for the rail com- company, the street and rail company. And his name is John Dick. And he's a Russian immigrant. He has no money. Um, and the parents, her parents are furious about, uh, about this because she's only known him a few months. And he's not the kind of man. And he certainly doesn't have the type of the, the pocketbook that his, uh, her parents wanted uh, her husband to have. So, uh, so she marries uh, this guy by the name of John Dick. And five months later, the marriage is over. Uh, she's She's already on to um, uh, another boyfriend. She's not interested at all in John Dick. And uh, she has has subsequently bought a house for herself and her mother. And she kicks John Dick out of the house. But he's desperate to get his wife back. So he uh, starts following her. um, And he threatens the father. And what was happening with Evelyn Dick's father is he had been stealing from his employer. He was he was stealing uh, tickets and cash out of the fare boxes for years, 
Um, and that's how they were able to afford this unique lifestyle for Evelyn and, and afford to send her uh, to Loretto um, Academy and, and buy her cars and, and all sorts of things. So John Dick found out uh, that this was happening. And so he threatened Evelyn's father and said, if you don't help me get my wife back, I'm going to tell our employer and the police that you've been stealing from them. So within a month of that conversation on March the 6th, uh, John Dick did not show up for work. With and, good reason. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, he had family back in Beansville, uh, two sisters, and he had a cousin in Hamilton that he'd been living with. So they reported him missing. His employer reported him missing. And then 10 days later, on March 16th, some, uh, some unsuspecting young kids were out on Hamilton Mountain for a picnic, and um, they found a torso on the mountain. Which, which started one of the, uh, for that time anyway, one of the all-time sensational court cases because of her and the case and everything else. I mean, it was at the time, the, I don't know if it's enough to say, I don't know if it's too much to say it was the O.J. Simpson case of its day, but it was, it was oh, pretty close. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is just before television. So the newspapers, uh, the Toronto Star and the Te Toronto Telegram, and of course the Hamilton Spectator, they were all really uh, desperate and vying for, um, you know, the latest news. So it was, it was a sensational trial. I mean, there was, there was a few trials to speak of, actually. Um, and then just to sort of round off the story before the trial happened, when the police, the police narrowed in on on Evelyn and her father um, very quickly because there was a lot of evidence left over from the crime and when they were investigating John Dick's murder uh, they found the body of her infant son encased in her attic so she was charged with that murder as well so it um as you say, it led to this sensational case that uh, that then spawned songs and plays and books yeah. and endless coverage. As you point out, and part of the reason, or maybe a big reason for doing this, this would have been her 100th birthday this year in October. Uh, odds are, just by typical human odds, she's probably dead, which I think for most people, Catherine, is, is eminently mm -hmm. frustrating because people want to know what happened to her. And I mean, that, that's part of what you tried to, to do with this, this podcast. You did hire an investigator to see if you could track her down. What happened when, the, when that person got to work? Yeah, I hired, um, I hired a researcher, a very, uh, you know, experienced researcher and I had an archivist in Ottawa. Um, and what, what we just found out is the way that we were able to, to trace, you know, even you know a little bit of where she may have ended up is that we we went through the records of a gentleman named Alec Edmondson who was the head of the parole and he was the gentleman that was created he took a, a, a liking to Evelyn while she was at um, the the prison for women in Kingston and he he created what friend at uh in west canada catherine we're breaking up catherine we're breaking up a little bit we've got a bad connection if you could oh, um sorry. just turn back sort of where you were before yeah. if you're on a cell because you were great before 
move a bit here. Um, there we go. Saying that Alex, uh, Alec Edmondson, uh, who was uh, the head of the, the National Parole Board, he had set Evelyn up in her new life. So we basically traced him and his whereabouts. And so we believe that she, I mean, best case scenario, we believe she ended up in Winnipeg um, and under an, an assumed name. And there are, we found documents because he kept meticulous records and he would talk about a woman, a parolee named Betty and how well Betty was doing. And so we, we believe that that's who he was talking about. Hmm. Um, but then Evelyn remarried uh, at some point. So she, she more than likely had two name changes. And hmm. that makes it very, very difficult for her to be found. Because you know, it's it, prove somebody's been dead for over 30 years. If I go to the archives and say, here's a death certificate, here's proof that somebody's been dead for 30 years, they will give me their information. But I can't prove that. Right. About Evelyn Dick, because I don't know what her, we don't know what her, it, her name was. It's stunning to me that somebody was able to disappear this successfully. And I mean, like, I was trying to think of who else who's been through the system that we've that has sort of fallen right off the face of the earth that we've completely lost track of and and the one name that comes to mind and it's completely different reasons because he in fact was acquitted was Guy Paul Moran who we don't you know has sort of just gone and nobody really knows where he was I know that uh, I think it was CBC or you know, Global tried to do a or did a, a documentary on him a few months ago and couldn't track him down he was just in the wind but even hmm. Carla Hamolka has been found a few times despite trying to hide in the Caribbean. Um, it, it just right. seems impossible that Evelyn Dick could just poof be gone. Right. Well, she had she had help in high places, and as I said, she was um, she was friends with people from you know the National Parole Board, not just people working with her, but but actual friends that, as I said, you know they're having a, a, a smart lunch at the the Fairmont Hotel in Ottawa. I mean, I don't know too many people on the parole board today that would be having you know, lunches <laughs> with uh with with any parolees but so that's what makes this so unique i don't i mean i understand when she was paroled why they gave her uh you know an assumed name but they not only gave her an assumed name they gave her an entire new identity a whole new location a new job everything they set her up for for life and then in 1985, uh, being being granted a royal prerogative of mercy, I don't understand that at all. Because if you look at the criteria for that that um, that pardon, I don't see how a convicted murderer falls into that. It's usually it's usually for people that have been exonerated. You know, somebody like Guy Palmerin. If he if he was given a royal prerogative of mercy, you'd say, well, okay, we understand that. He was acquitted. He was he's been exonerated. But Evelyn Dick never was. So, so I think people forget, friends. Catherine. I think people forget that it was as recent as '85. And I, I realize 1985 mm -hmm. is not that recent anymore. I mean, it's it's a while back. But um, do we know? Is there any way to track down when you go to look for that pardon? what part of Canada even the application came from? Is there any trace or any paper trail for the application? No, because that is all um, uh, secret, is private, confidential, and the government, um, again, the, the National Parole Board has to apply uh, for that royal pardon on behalf of somebody. So, no, that, that 
the, that paper trail is absolutely and completely um, non-existent, and that's actually part of the the um, the pardon. It it basically uh, eradicates somebody's entire record, and they but don't, somebody they, knows they don't even they don't exist anymore. But somebody exist. has to know whether it whether it's the lawyer who applied for it or somebody out there knows who she was, and and surely somebody is alive still who knows who she was. I think there would be very, very few people, but I do, I still believe, um, I mean, the other, the other interesting thing that came up in this story and is in, is talked about in the Brian Valley book is that her own daughter, uh, was never supposedly never told her mother's new identity. And he, um, he talks about a, a meeting that they had, uh, in Ottawa as well. Uh, where Evelyn Dick met her daughter, who again was about 23, 24 at the time. She was an adult, and she had her she had her own daughter. So Evelyn Dick met her granddaughter for the first time, um, and Evelyn's daughter was was upset and hurt that she was never given that information. Um, and we don't know if she, if she ever was, but at that time, uh, as I said, 1980s, she apparently did not know who her mother was where she lived or what her new name was. And Evelyn Dick said that that was to protect her, to protect the daughter from, you know, newsmen and magazines and, and people trying to get, uh, get to her. So she didn't want it's, her own daughter to ever be in that situation. It's, it's so fascinating because what you just said, and we're short on time, sadly, but what you just said about how you have to be able to prove that someone has been dead for 30 years before you could get that information seems to almost guarantee that, well, at least for the next 30, 40, 50 years, we're never going to find out. Cause I mean, somebody theoretically could live to be 120. I mean, we, we know there are people out there who do not very many, but yeah. you, how do you prove otherwise? So you and I, and probably everyone else, certainly everyone who's interested in this story are probably all going to be gone before this information could become available. Yes, and even the National Archives, they have moved the dial on. And so even if you can't prove, if you can't prove somebody is dead, um, if you know their birth date and it's 100 years. So when I found out she was 100 years this coming year, I was like, oh, this is great, because that normally re will release records. Um, but they've actually now changed that because people are living longer. So they've, they've moved that up to, I, I believe it's either 120 or 130 years um, after birth. So, so yes, it could be a long time unless somebody comes forward uh, and, and provides some information. I mean, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, uncover or, or, you know, disturb somebody's life. I mean, her daughter, is, as far as we know, is is still living, and her granddaughter. Um, so that's certainly not my intention. But I, you know, I do believe that. Uh, a lot of people, particularly people in Hamilton, you know, are still very, very curious mm. to, to what happened to, to Mrs. Dick. Well, we know that, uh, what was it, about 10 years ago, after decades of not knowing, that we found out who Watergate's deep throat was, a guy named Mark Felt. Uh, so I suppose anything is possible that somebody could come forward and say, here she is. Some, you know, there's some money to be made here for somebody. I, you know, yeah. if if they know, but it's just a question of whether they want to do it. It's um, someone will, I think, someone will eventually know. I'm convinced of it, Catherine, but I'm just not sure it's going to be you or I or anyone who's alive right now. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep digging. I'm going to keep digging. So, uh, 
I'm I'm currently looking through some records of the uh, from the um, the women's prison um, to see what I can find uh, through that route. So so I'm going to keep I'm going to keep digging for sure. The uh, the podcast is called Where Are You, Mrs. Dick? What uh, you can go to pod.casts.io. Uh, you can probably just search on Google to get it. Or if you want to, you can go to the Spectator's webpage, thespec.com. There's a story there, and it has a link to the podcast. They're very, very well done. Uh, well worth a listen, especially if you're from Hamilton and want a little bit of very entertaining, very ghoulish Hamilton history. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and listen to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.